Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 91. Anglicization Strikes Back. First things first, don't worry. We will still have The Empire Strikes Back as an episode when covering the American Revolution. I just had to continue with the theme of giving New York episodes Star Wars-related titles. Anyway, now that we've gotten that out of the way, where were we? In our last episode, we looked at how the Glorious Revolution affected New York as the colony. Well, specifically New York City and Eastern Long Island broke out in revolt under Jacob Leisler, and how, back in England, the new royals of William and Mary had more pressing issues, so were forced to acquiesce to the situation. So, let's get into what Leisler's government did. The first thing he needed to do was call an election, and he did it in a rather strange way. He sent out this message on February the 20th, 1690. Elect and make choice of two proper and fit persons to repair forthwith to this city, empowering them as your representatives to consult, debate, and conclude all such matters and things as shall be thought necessary for the supply of this government in this present conjuncture, of which you are not to fail, as you will answer the same at your peril. End quote. Yep. That's real. He actually said that. Perhaps, unsurprisingly, this request resulted in absolutely no response whatsoever from anyone. Leisler then made a second, less threatening request in April, which resulted in an actual assembly. The assembly had two main goals. It needed to fund itself, remember the financial crisis that caused this mess in the first place, and it wanted to lessen the economic burdens and inequality within the colony. To address this, a new tax was raised, but the old monopoly on the baking of bread was broken. The assembly reconvened in September, where it sought to increase the size of its control by introducing more tax officers and taking issue with those who didn't fully support Leisler's government. This brings us to Albany. The foundation of Leisler's support was from the older Dutch elements of the colony, so you would have expected that Albany would have been completely behind him. It was the single largest Dutch community in New York, and Albany had intensely disliked Andros and the Dominion of New England. However, it wasn't meant to be. The leading figures of Albany were concerned by Leisler, in particular his hot-headedness. Evidence A. You are not to fail, as you will answer the same at your peril. They were all for taking back control, didn't want to have any gains crushed, when England was less focused on France because Leisler had taken things too far. They were also concerned about how he might act with the Iroquois. The relationship with the Iroquois was perhaps the single most important job the governor of New York had to manage. It was vital towards both the security of the colony and, indeed, all the other English colonies in the region as well as the critical balance of power with France in the North American continent, 
The first town that would be in the firing line if the relationship deteriorated was Albany, and they were not willing to trust Leisler with this. In addition, there were more selfish reasons. One of Leisler's earliest moves was breaking the monopoly on baking bread, and the Albanians were worried about what he might do to their fur monopoly. Podcast footnote. This isn't something I've ever put any thought into before, but I find it very interesting that someone from Albany is called an Albanian, which is very easy to confuse with an Albanian from Albania. When I was doing my research to make sure I was getting this right, I found out that an Albanian can also be from Scotland, based on the Gaelic Alba, which is the native name for Scotland. This Alba is the origin of the word Albion, which is an older term for Great Britain. It doesn't get used much at the moment, but the main usage is probably BBC Alba, which is the BBC's Scotch Gaelic language channel. While Scotland became the more famous name of the kingdom, Alba would sometimes be rendered as the Duchy of Albany, which the Duke of Albany Therefore, was a title reserved for younger sons of the Scottish and later British royal family. Kings Charles I and James II were both Dukes of Albany. This is the reason for the city in New York being named Albany. It was, after all, in New York, the dominion of James, the Duke of York, and the Duke of Albany. But that is quite enough etymology for one day. End podcast footnote. Because of all these reasons, fear of Lyle's rashness and economic concerns over the fur monopoly, the citizens of Albany called their own convention and decided to go it alone until they heard further instructions from England. In November 1689, the Lyle's sent a militia unit to Albany demanding the town surrender. When it didn't, the Lyslearians got spooked and returned to New York City, having wasted eight days. Following more unrest from French and Indian invaders, Lysler decided that Albany could not be left independent. He feared the French taking advantage of English divisions, as without support from the rest of the colony, Albany didn't stand a chance. Albany was spooked enough by this that after a gentler approach, that it was willing to make concessions and rejoin the fold. Leisler then spent much of 1690 meeting with the other colonies, Massachusetts, Plymouth and Connecticut, to come up with a plan to deal with the French menace. Domestically, Leisler proved an able administrator, managing the colony well throughout 1690. However, his downfall was already in the works but not from Montreal, or even Paris. His downfall was to come from London. Cue menacing sound effects. Throughout 1689, William and Mary had more pressing concerns than New York's governor, but by 1690 they managed to appoint Henry Slaughter. However, as we've seen at length, it took a long time for governors to arrive once they'd been appointed, which is why Slaughter didn't arrive until the evening of March 19th, 1691. Slaughter arrived in New York City, announced his commission, 
and then ordered Leisler to surrender the fort. Leisler refused three times, saying that it went against military protocol to surrender a fort after dark. He instead handed it over the next morning, and was immediately charged with treason and murder. The main basis for his charge of treason was his refusal to hand over the fort the night before. The trial of Leisler and nine others began at the end of March, and while technically fair, was unlikely to receive a positive result for Leisler. The defendants were unfamiliar with English law, and so did things such as refusing to answer the charges against them, instead saying that the court lacked jurisdiction. Two were acquitted, but eight were sentenced to death. Six of these were eventually pardoned, but not Leisler. Instead, he was ordered to be hung, and then cut down while still alive, had his bowels taken out and burned before his face, finally having his head decapitated, his body chopped into four pieces. Not a nice way to go. I would now like to include a quote to sum up Leisler from Michael Kamen's Colonial New York, A History. As Leisler had become increasingly domineering and demagogic, his internal coalition of supporters began to be dissipated. The towns in Queens County had repudiated his claims and accused him of tyranny. Merchants in Manhattan had begun to send petitions against him to England. The colony of Connecticut withdrew its support, and the cost of maintaining adequate defences, Anglo-French War resumed in May 1689, became an enormous burden for the colony's depressed economy. There remained, to be sure, a loyal core of Lysarians. They maintained the martyrdom of their leaders as political cause for more than a decade, and in 1695 they obtained a parliamentary act clearing the name of Leisler, and restoring his estates to his proper heirs. The rebel leaders lingered on in provincial memory for fully a generation, and they remained as controversial in death as they had been in life. The years between 1683 and 1691 were determinative ones in many ways for New York. Both the memory and the reality of factionalism lingered on, so that instability became one of the least attractive aspects of public life in the province. As Caldwalder Coden recalled in his reflections upon the great animosities which continued many years, each party, as they were at different times favoured by several governors, opposed all the measures taken by the other, while each of them were by turns in credit with the peoples or the governor, and sometimes even prosecuted each other to death. The public measures were, even by these means, perpetually fluctuating, and often one day contradictory to what they were the day before. This Incessant instability, coupled with the colony's excess of pluralism and its peculiar land system, made it unattractive to immigrants for years to come. It remained underpopulated and underdeveloped, so that the most significant phenomenon of the coming decades may well have been an internal development, the dynamics of anglicisation. End quote. What we have here is an odd point in the narrative. I originally wrote a lengthy version of the history of New York 
following this incident. It got into a bit of everything, from the trade relationship with Boston to how New York became the legal hub of North America, but it wasn't quite right. I looked back over at what I'd written, and it was almost identical to the episode of Rhode Island, where we zoomed forward to 1750. The names were different, and the stories were different, but it was the same episode. This prompted a huge rethink of the series. I started looking at my wider notes, my wider plans, and sketched out a series of episodes in Pennsylvania, and soon became alarmed at just how similar it was to the New York episode, and the Rhode Island episode, and indeed the episodes on Virginia. While we found a lot of interesting material on colonial North America doing our tailored-in-detail colony-by-colony approach, I don't think it's going to work for the period from 1700 to 1750. The material is too repetitive, and I don't think it's going to be that rewarding for us to go through this process for every single state. One of the unique things about writing history as a podcast is that you're there with me as I'm writing it. Had this been a book, or something that had to be finished before the beginning could be published, you wouldn't see things like this. But they do happen. Sometimes you get partway through a project and can see it isn't working as well as you wanted it to. So, what now? At our current pace, if I was determined to go down this road, we could probably cover the rest of the colonies by early next year. However, I don't think that would be rewarding from a narrative point of view. I think you'd get tired from the lack of progress. Heck, I already am, and I'm only a few episodes ahead in my alternative episode timeline. So, what I'm going to suggest is that we radically streamline the narrative. Rather than going on a colony-by-colony approach, we'll zoom out a bit sooner than I'd originally anticipated. We'll continue with the march towards the Seven Years' War, but it will be taking all the colonies together, rather than piece by little piece. I hope you don't mind this change in plan. Should you wish to pursue any colony in detail, and believe me, there are a lot of details out there I haven't been including, because if we wanted to, we could never leave the colonial period, there is so much to cover here, I would fully recommend using the series of books which has formed the foundation of our last 90-odd episodes, A History of the American Colonies in 13 Volumes. There are plenty of other good books out there, and if you want a recommendation, just send me a tweet, I'll be more than happy to help out. But my main suggestion would be A History of the American Colonies in 13 Volumes. It has been invaluable. Well, I hope you enjoyed what has been an unexpectedly strange episode as we have our last super detailed episode, and I'll join you next time for something which is going to be a little bit different. Indeed, at the time of recording, I've already written our next few episodes, and I think you're really going to enjoy them. So, thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon.